Atamarie, welcome to First Up, it is Rapa. That's Wednesday, the 24th of August. Ko Nathan Rarere Aho. Coming up, Aussie legend John Farnham has undergone cancer surgery. We'll have the latest from Pam Corkery. Road closures cause headaches for Nelson schools as the cleanup continues. Scott Morrison's secret appointments to five ministerial portfolios while Prime Minister were deemed legal, but was it responsible governments? The Sharma drama goes on and on and on and on, and even after expelled, it's still going on. Plus, why Palmerston North wants to be the drag capital of New Zealand. There's bearded drag, there's glamour drag, there's funny drag, there's live singing. There will be a little bit for everyone. It will be a smorgasbord of drag. Maria, welcome to First Up. Uh, it's Nathan Rarity here. I've been asleep for about eight days. What's going on? Um, much happening in the world. Uh, gee, what, what was happening when I went to sleep? The All Blacks weren't very good and we were about to fire in Foster. Uh, there was a, an MP in Tauranga who used to beat people up at school and probably high petrol. Let me know, and we'll ask you about that later on. But we begin this morning in Australia, and uh, we're in Brisbane right now with the uh, the Queen of Queensland. It is Pam Corkery. Uh, Morena, Pam, how are you? Morena, I'm good, thank you. Still got a bit of um, long COVID, I think, or medium-sized COVID. It's a medium. So look out for that. <laughs> That's yeah. a good one. Medium co- Oh, it'll get to welter COVID soon, you'll be good. Hey, um, let's talk about um, some Murdochs, because we love that. Rupert Murdoch's son, Lachlan, is suing a business website for defamation. Why? Well, the business website is um, crikey. It's an independent Australian website. It does news, investigations, analysis, opinion. It's brilliant journalism, courtesy of some serious senior journalists who bailed from mainstream media. Now, for the past two months, Crikey has been dealing with legal demands from Lachlan Murdoch about an article published in late June about Donald Trump, you know, in the January insurrection and the role played by Fox News, which, um, you know, the Murdoch's own, in stoking the assault on democracy. On Monday Just Gone, Crikey challenged the billionaire after this two months, um, you know, to sue. It said, go ahead, sue us, posted it in the New York Times, everything, which is very bold because Mm. Crikey doesn't make a huge profit, if any. So late last night, Lachlan Murdoch, the chief executive of Fox, filed a statement of claim against Crikey in the federal court. Oh, well, that was silly. They need to know the story of Deadspin, the sports website that did that and said, all right, come on, Pete Teal, sue us. And he did. And that was it. Um, let's talk about uh, John Farnham. This is terrible news. Uh, Australian of the Year, of course, in 1988. He is the voice. Uh, what's his condition? Because I understand he's gone some undergone cancer surgery. Look, it's not great. Um, it's been very... Um just he went in for a day long surgery and he was chipper beforehand Richard Wilkins who's the, the sort of music guy who's always everywhere laughing and joking 12 hours of surgery that's all we know we don't know what kind of um, situation you're know, where the cancer is but it sounds like a fairly substantial uh, tumour that he's dealing with yeah it does oh, well we obviously everyone's sending the well, best thoughts yeah well also to to um Victoria because that would mean if the worst came to the worst, the third I'd have to have a third national tribute. We haven't even done Olivia Newton John and Judith Durham yet. you're right, it's got to be bigger than Warnies. 
easily yeah, isn't well, done well, well, I don't know if that can be done, actually. No. Olivia will, yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> now, there was uh, things that spiked during the pandemic, one of those being divorces in Australia. What are the numbers? Um, the numbers are, I think, 50,000 in 2020 to 21. That's the highest rate since sort of 2012. Now, sociologists don't they? Um, it said, while lockdowns and other pandemic-related stresses have certainly played a role, there are other factors at play too. So we've got some university professors saying our social norms have changed. Oh, by the way, that's interesting because divorces went down in New Zealand during that period, but up in Australia. Oh, no oh, hack. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, and this woman's twittering on. People understand there's a range of reasons why marriages may not work out. Um, she credits Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin for their consciously uncoupling and influencing amicable divorces. But the thing is, the big factor I always find with these stats is less people are getting married. Yeah, yeah, there you know, we like, go. In New Zealand, like more than 50% now of children are born to unmarried parents. Oh. Well, th- I'm sorry. I'm, I'm still. <laughs> I'm still traumatized by. You did. And I'm still traumatized by you bringing up Chris Martin and um, our friend that. Steams, you know. Hey, um, t- this is a, a thing too. Now, obviously, p- fuel prices have been the, a hot button all around the world, very big, but a different one here. And I'm wondering if we'll get a follow up like this soon. So, tell me about this. Australia's emergency fuel reserves are only at 58 days. Is is that normal? Is it a concern? What is it? Well, I don't think it sounds very secure at all. And apparently, it's the international standard is to have 90 days. Um, and even that doesn't sound that much for an emergency. No, we've only got 58 days of petrol, and I'm sure this story that's just breaking will freak people out. I mean, Australians love their cars, and they drive such a... I mean, my bloke, he has to drive 120 k a day back and forth to do his job. People drive a lot here. So they're thinking of increasing that figure to 90 by 2026. But, you know, Australia was the last country to sign on to this international 90-day agreement of emergency reserves. And it is a big deal because China, you know, if it continues on the way it's going, aggression against Taiwan, you know, it could choke shipping points. So there you go. But yeah. it just does seem a bit lax. Get yourself a bicycle, Australia. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Pam Corkery. Always entertaining. Love to chat with you. This year's Pam Corkery out of Brisbane. It's 12 past five. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. We're going to keep it in Australia. Regional community leaders say that the solution to their housing crisis is building upwards, not outwards. They want more high-density housing to accommodate low-income residents and essential workers. But... Could people in the bush be enticed to live in apartments? It's our friend, the ABC's Evan Coote, uh, Gavin Coote, who went to find out. Housing stress is far from just a capital city problem. The regional city of Bathurst, about three hours west of Sydney, was already facing a housing squeeze before COVID came along and brought an influx of tree changes from the big smoke. The problem we've found ourselves now is that because we kind of tried to ignore that reality for a long time, we now find ourselves in in what we've realised is a crisis, but has been a crisis building for a long time. 
That's Tony McBurney, an architect based in Bathurst, who's long been advocating for more high-density housing in regional areas. He argues the one-size-fits-all approach to housing has meant essential workers and other locals can't find a suitable place to live. Where I'm working at the moment, you know, I'm trying to address this housing crisis all over the state, I'm from the Northern Rivers, sort of out far west, where we're finding that, that key workers uh, in communities are simply unable to afford to, uh, to live or can't find the appropriate housing product. And so a doctor um, taking a 12-month stint in the far west somewhere, you know, finds himself on 1,200 square metres of ground with maintenance and lawns and, you know, five bedrooms that he doesn't want and need. And it's just that this complete mismatch of the housing type to the breadth and diversity of our population. And so that's generated this um, market failure where it's very hard to produce anything other than than the sort of standard McMansion on a you know, suburban block somewhere. Some people need to step up and, and lead in those areas to show how different things can be achieved. That's something regional leaders in the New South Wales Northern Rivers are now agitating for. Steve Creek is the Mayor of Lismore, where the future of thousands of homes remains uncertain after the flood disaster earlier this year. You know, for Lismore, you can't necessarily build out. We all know what happens when you build out. We're on a floodplain and it goes underwater in flood, so the obvious solution is to build up. The state member for Lismore and the mayor of nearby Ballina agree higher density housing needs to be considered, but architect Tony McBurney admits getting many people in the bush to consider apartment living might be a tough sell. The particular popularity uh, is particular the place as well. So people are very happy to live in high density in New York um, and it's very highly valued. You know, it's the most expensive city in the world because um, of the quality of its high density living. A lot of our high density uh, in Australia has been often imposed on those with the least sort of discretionary capacity, if I can put it that way. So we explore it in our social housing and in other forms where people have you know, less capacity to push back. And so we end up with poor results. Nicole Garren is Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Sydney. While she doesn't see high-rise apartments as the solution to the regional housing squeeze, she agrees the current approach isn't working. We can't simply leave the regional housing question to the market and we can't simply say if we rezone to allow lots of, you know, high-rise housing, that's going to resolve our housing affordability problems. It hasn't resolved them in the cities and it won't resolve them in the country. We do need dedicated social and affordable housing and we need an increase, for instance, in the rental subsidies that are paid to people, to renters on low incomes as well. That's University of Sydney Professor Nicole Garran ending that report from the ABC's Gavin Coote. Come on, hurry up, it's quarter past five, let's go. Uh, you're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Raduri, keen for your feedback. Um, what happened? What, what's been your news in the last sort of week or so uh, that we've been apart? Uh, Nick Trubridge, by the way, genius, eh? Good. Star of broadcasting for a long time, which is good. And you say, oh, I remember it. Heard him here first. Uh, but uh, 2101, tell me what's been going on for you uh, in the last, uh, I don't know, last week or so. Stuff you think I've missed out, because really I've, I've just been sleeping and making cheese toasties that I can't taste. Uh, or if you like to do it the old-fashioned way, email me first up at rnz.co.nz. But we will go to the Middle East now, where we cover everything from ice cream to nuclear deals. Joining me now from Doha is our correspondent, Alex Beard. Morena, Alex. Kia ora, Nathan. 
Okay, Ben and Jerry's, lovely, really expensive though. Tell us why the ice cream company has tried to stop a deal by its parent company Unilever in Israel's West Bank? Yeah, so this is quite an interesting one. So Unilever is based in London, Ben and Jerry's in the States. When Ben and Jerry's was set up, it was set up with a bit of a political activist wing. So anyway, um, Ben and Jerry's was being sold uh, initially in Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank. The occupied of the West Bank is, is identified by most of the world as belonging to the Palace to Palestine. Um, and then these Israeli settlements are recognized by most to also be illegal. So Ben and Jerry's turned around and said, hey, we're going to stop selling our ice cream in the I- illegal Israeli settlements because we're going to make a stand here. Um, Unilever decided that they couldn't do that and decided to start selling it again. And even went as far as selling Ben and Jerry interests in Israel to a local company. Ben and Jerry said, hey, you can't do that. We don't want our ice cream being sent here. And so we're going to take you to court and stop you being able to transfer the Israeli business to, the lo- to a local licensee so you can continue selling. And unfortunately for Ben and Jerry's, um, they've lost. It's quite interesting because although Ben and Jerry's ice cream is part of Unilever, they were allowed when they were bought out by Unilever to retain an independent board to oversee its uh, so-called social mission. So this independent board has has gone and tried to continue that. But unfortunately, in this case, Unilever ha- has won and it looks like Ben and Jerry's will end up being sold in these illegal Israeli settlements in the occupied West Bank. Yeah, interesting. Hey, uh, this is some sad news. The body of an eighth pilgrim has been found in the rubble of a Shia Muslim shrine uh, that's collapsed in Iraq. Yes, this is really, really sad stuff. Uh, most of those who have died um, were, were children and some uh, five women. And I think it was four, yeah, five women and three children. So, so sad stuff here. Basically what's happened is that there's been very high humidity in this area of Iraq called Karbala. Um, no one had realized that a, a mountain nearby the shrine had been collecting water and basically it got to the point where the land was so saturated that there's been a landslide and it struck uh, a Shia Muslim shrine and caused it to collapse. Oh, horrible news. Uh, let's, um, now this is a, this sit-in that's happened. Supporters of a religious leader, Maqtada al-Sadir, have launched a sit-in in front of the Supreme Judicial Court. What are, what are they calling for? Yeah, so this is an ongoing show in Iraq. There's been 10 months uh, with, with no government, uh, 10 months since the elections. Um, Maqtada al-Sadir, uh, is a very powerful Shiite Muslim cleric in Iraq, and his block in the Iraqi parliament is also the most powerful. So they've been the ones that have been essentially preventing the formation of a government. Um, they are now des- they have been demanding for a while that um, parliament be dissolved, forcing um, more elections. Uh, initially, there've been a weeks long sit-in at the parliament that hasn't really come to anything. And now the basically the move has been to go to Iraq's judiciary to stage a sit-in there and demand that the judiciary um, dissolves parliament itself. Unfortunately, that's also meant that Iraq's top legal authority has, has, has had to suspend its work um, because basically, guys, they can't get into work. So anyway, this is just an ongoing situation in Iraq, 10 months with no government, 10 months since the election. 
And this is a country which desperately needs a government to be formed to deal with so many of the issues that it's facing in terms of um, uh, the, the, uh, people's lives. People are really struggling. People are, there's a lot of poverty in the country, and those issues need to be sorted. But as I said, 10 months, still no government. So hopefully one will be formed soon. Uh, can you can you just give us a minute here on the uh, the the news from their neighbours uh, in Iran? US uh, negotiators say they're encouraged by Iran's response to the nuclear deal proposal. So where do they go from here? Yes, so we've we've spoken about this a number of times now, haven't we? This is kind of like the never-ending story trying to get this 2015 Iran nuclear deal back on track. For a quick rehash, for those of you who don't remember what that is, basically back in 2015, the Iran and the United States signed a deal. Iran agreed to curb its nu- nuclear program. The US said, well, if you do that, we'll lift a bunch of these economic sanctions um, we've been imposing on you, and it would make life just a bit easier in Iran. Uh, Donald Trump had pulled out of the deal. Iran then pulled out of the deal and then started going full gun ho back into its nuclear program. But it seems like right now we're at a pivotal moment where where we are at the close we are the closest we have been so far to restoring that nuclear deal. There have been 16 months of negotiations. U.S. negotiators say they are encouraged by the Iranian response. Iran had had some pretty hardline demands um, to the Americans, for instance, uh, taking the Iranian Revolutionary Guard off the uh, the U.S. foreign terror list. Iran's actually backtracked on some of that and said, okay, we we won't maintain some of these demands. It seems that there's a first on both sides to get this back on track. Um, These these are some pretty intense uh, economic sanctions sanctions that Iran has been dealing with. It's seen their their economy tank, their their, their currency tank. And so uh, the Americans are pretty happy with where things are at. But as it always seems to be when it comes to things nuclear and Iran, um, the proof is in the pudding, but it seems like we're at the closest we have been in five, six, seven years. Mm, thank you very much, Alex Beard. There, it'll be a date pudding. It'll be a lovely one. It's twenty-three minutes past five. I'm Nathan Radadier with first up here on RNZ National. So coming up between now and six, a sad anniversary for Pluto. Thoughts from the Hamilton locals about uh, a departed MP and a warning for German speed demons. Well, it doesn't get more Kiwi than the old buzzy bee, which I found out was actually invented about two hundred and fifty metres from our house. So there we are. That's uh, our little local claim to fame in uh, our corner of New Zealand. Uh, this week on Traby, you could be the star of your town. Christmas Parade in a Buzzy Bee float, which is up for auction. There's also a Pihar Grand Design, but before those, it's coming up Daffodil Day, so there's uh, plenty on Trade Me this week to help fill the pool room to raise funds for those impacted by cancer. Trade Me's Ruby Totsan spoke with producer Jeremy Parkinson. Yeah, that's right. So there's actually a number of charities on site right now that are raising money for Daffodil Day, uh, mostly related to sports so if you are a sports fan, then it's absolutely worth jumping on it site and having a look. There's also silver ferns, T-shirts, and all sorts of other signed goodies. But yes, this one in particular is currently sitting at 125 worth seven bids so far. 
with 46 watch lists, I suspect this one will go a bit higher, this, this signed cricket ball. What's the highest bid at the moment and when do we see this one come to a close? So 125 right now, but it doesn't close until Sunday night, so there is a bit of time there. Your classic kookaburra white one-day international cricket ball uh, signed by Black Caps uh, bowler Trent Bolt. So the Buzzy Bee, we've got a Buzzy Bee uh, for auction on trade. This is no ordinary Buzzy Bee. This is not one of your little kiddies toys Buzzy Bees. This is a big daddy Buzzy Bee. This is a big Buzzy Bee. It's a float that has that it was, according to the listing description, used in the Farmers Parade for many years, as well as school fairs, galas, but it is time to find a new owner for the bee. Sitting at $5,000, but interestingly, that covers the cost of the truck, which is how the bee is transported. But if you just want the bee, it's actually free to go to home. And I recommend if it is of interest that you jump on site and have a look soon because there is some interest in the Q&A already. So basically this is a Buzzy Bee costume for a Nissan car. Yeah, exactly. I, I, that's all, that's all <laughs> say no more. Well, um, real estate listing this week. It's, uh, oh man, this is a, there's two types of Piha house. There's old school Piha and new school. And this is an incredibly modern looking Piha Clifftop Retreat. Yes, that's right. So this one actually featured on the New Zealand television series version of Grand Designs. And as outlined in the description, is really a masterclass in wholesome coastal luxury living. It's a four-bedder, two-bathroom with two living areas. It's also got a study. And it's just, it's something else. The outdoor living area is incredible. It's got the pizza oven right next to the pool, right next to the sparkle and lots of living space out there. And it all faces that beautiful view where you can see out over the stunning Piha coastline. Yeah, this this is a, a surface dream, I imagine. Honestly, if you don't have your pizza oven by your pool, you've missed an opportunity, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I that's what I'd put it to you. And magnificent views. I think looking north up the beach uh, with uh, Lion Rock in the foreground. That's pretty stunning. Any idea of how much they want for this? No indication. It's to be sold by auction on the eleventh of September at four pm. If, if that's of interest, it would be quite fun to go and have a look. I do also want to call out that bedroom that's photographed. No joke. There are literally four surfboards hung on the wall one on the ceiling and, and, and two on the wall and one next to the bed so four yeah. surfboards in your room yeah and every single room has a view of that beach that's just incredible mm-hmm. so where, where can uh, we, we go to see all these auctions on the Trade Me homepage you'll find them all if you go to trademe.co.nz and scroll down you'll find the cool auction section and you'll find these and many more other treats something for everyone that was Trey B's Ruby Topsand. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life we call the 24th of August. Some people call it, oh, my birthday. One of those, Dave Chappelle, comedian, he's 49 years old today. Uh, it's the 64th birthday of someone who really was Mr. Early 80s Movies, Steve Gutenberg. He was, Police Academy... Cocoon, short bis, uh, short short biscuit, short circuit, uh, and three men and a baby. Uh, those were all Steve Gutenberg masterpieces. It's the 65th birthday of Stephen Fry, 
as well. Uh, some significant happenings uh, on this day throughout history. In 1821, the Treaty of Cordoba was signed. That gave Mexico its independence from Spain. Of course, Cortes and the Spanish invaded there in the 1500s. Um, horrible story. Uh, in 2006, sad day, Pluto was demoted from being a planet to a dwarf planet. Two and a half thousand scientists all gathered in a room, the International Astronomical Union, and they went, no, nope, because uh, they'd reclassified what these things were. So now, uh, according to the new definition, there are eight planets and four dwarf planets, uh, Ceres, Pluto, Makemake, and Eris. There you are. But the most important thing that happened, uh, a great day in world history. Where would doing anything be without this? Potato chips. Uh, first prepared on this day in 1853 by Chef George Crum at Moon's Lake House near Saratoga Springs in New York. There you are. I don't know if they were kettle or whatever, uh, but that is uh, the day of our life that we like to call August the 24th. Joining us now from our business team is Mr. Giles Beckford. Kia ora, Giles. Kia ora to you, Nathan. Welcome back, my friend. Thank you very much. Uh, what are you focusing on today? Well, we've got a couple of things on the boil. Probably the biggest of them is Google. You know, go and Google it. Well, Google, uh, you remember, uh, along with Facebook, under the gun for so long from media organisations such as our own uh, and broader commentators that they basically rip off our content. Uh, They use it to attract advertisers and clicks and the like, and they don't pay us a cent. And, of course, around the world there's been a move by some governments to start putting the acid on them uh, through either digital levies or changing the law. Uh, They were doing that in Australia which has sort of brought them to the table to negotiate commercial deals. Google has just struck its first commercial deal in New Zealand with seven media publishing outlets. Spoiler alert, RNZ, Radio New Zealand, is one of them. Uh, The biggest is probably NZME, which is the Herald, News Talk ZB, uh, and all their their various uh, subsidiary publications, but also Scoop, which is an online news service, and Newsroom uh, is in there. So, not inconsiderable. Um, And this means that uh, Google is launching a thing called its uh, News Showcase, uh, and the uh, media outlets will get uh, a platform. They've got various formats that they can do. Um, In the end, uh, although we haven't been told any of the financial and commercial arrangements, you know, obviously the business that is dragged uh, to those sites, um, you know, Google will pay a fee for, uh, and so there'll be some money in the kitty for those companies. It's still got to do a deal with uh, a much bigger group of uh, media outlets in this country, including Stuff, who decided to negotiate collectively under the uh, News Publishers Association. Uh, So that one we'll wait and see. Uh, There had been a few sort of growls in the background from Chris Farfoy and more recently from... Um, Willie Jackson uh, as the relevant ministers saying it's time that this sort of thing got sorted so perhaps that may have been just a thing to 
push it over the line, although mm. uh, I was told by Google yesterday, well, no, not well, you know, there are lots of different things that, that mattered. So, anyway, some progress there that social media, we'll wait and see if Facebook actually reaches agreements uh, with New Zealand outlets as well, but some yeah. progress there on social media, finally paying some money towards uh, the people whose uh, content they've been profiting from for next to nothing for so long. And a stunning move of irony there, Giles, um, when you said scoop. I was like, is that still a thing? And I googled it, and it is. So there you go. Uh, there we find out. Thank you very much. Uh, Cure, mate. Giles Beckford there, and you can hear more from the business team this morning at 10 to 7 to the money markets now. Your New Zealand dollar is buying you the following 62.22 US cents. 89.67 Australian cents, 62.41 euro cents. It's the best arm wrestle in the world right now, watching the US dollar versus um, the euro, seeing if it's called soccer or football, depending on who's winning each day. I think today is a football day. There we go. Uh, 52.52 British pence, 4.26 yuan, 84.88 Japanese yen. If you're buying Fijian dollars, you can buy 1.37 of those. And uh, 6.37 Tazakhstani Somani. Yeah. Uh, we head towards 6 o'clock with news that Germany is considering speed limits to more of its famous autobahns, and it's all because of the rising cost of fuel. The move was first floated by the country's environment minister in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The BBC's Jenny Hill has this story. It's practically a national pastime. Indulging a passion for speed, even if it's in miniature. But as Germany hurtles towards winter, an energy crisis looms and calls for a speed limit on its motorways are gaining traction. It doesn't make any sense. With the current petrol prices, no one goes full throttle on the motorway. Everyone's going slower. Trying to save even more energy by imposing rules wouldn't work. A speed limit is long overdue. But in reality, you can't go much faster anyway. Germany's motorways are world famous. There is technically nothing to stop a driver doing, as one did recently, more than 400 kilometers an hour. But would slowing them down significantly reduce fuel consumption? In the drive to conserve energy, this economist believes every little helps. It could save some 1.5% of the consumption of fuel. Uh, at least if we would limit it, uh, uh, introduce a speed limit for a certain period of time. I think we should be carefully about introducing it forever, eternally, but for a certain time, as long as the crisis prevails, why not? A motorway speed limit would please environmental campaigners and those who worry about safety, although significantly more people die on Germany's rural roads than the Autobahn. This debate has been raging on and off for years, and it's extremely contentious. This, after all, is the land of rules and regulations of bureaucracy. So for many, it's about so much more than the open road. It's about freedom. And for Germany's liberal politicians, that right is sacrosanct. 
though the rest of the coalition government disagrees. Well, where's the stop then? Um, if you if you say, well, speed limit 130 kilometers per hour, then the next person comes and says, well, it's 100 uh, kilometers per hour would be even better. The next one comes and says, well, 60 would be even better. And the next person comes and says, well, not driving a car at all would be the best. It's a long-running and intense debate. The public opinion has now shifted in favour of a limit. Could this be the moment the battle for Germany's motorways is finally won? Oh, they'll be asking to drive in reverse soon, won't they? The world's gone mad. That's uh, Jenny Hill with that report. It's 20 to 6. I'm Nathan Rarere. You're here listening to First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, Nelson's clean-up causes headaches for schools. If you thought Palmerston North was a drag, you ain't seen nothing yet. And the Sharma drama continues as the ex-old MP vows to front up with evidence. <laughs> The professionals of Morning Reporter here after six. It's Corin Dan with the shakedown on what's going on. Kia ora, Corin. Uh, kia ora. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, we will talk to Chris Bishop from National this morning, first up after seven, regarding the decision. Well, it wasn't a shock decision by any means, but the uh, decision that came through late last night or late yesterday evening about Trevor Mallard retiring as Speaker. Uh, it's been a controversial ride for Trevor Mallard. The opposition have been very critical at times. Others say that he has done some good things around making it a more family-friendly place, holding ministers to account, etc. But he has not been without a lot of criticism over his handling of things like the protests, uh, to say the least. Uh, we will also check in on the situation in Nelson and in Marlborough with the flood clean-up, the ongoing issues there. Uh, the Oranga Tamariki Oversight Bill uh, has passed through Parliament. That hasn't been without controversy either, with only Labour supporting that. All of the others, including the Greens, are very strongly opposed to the changes they've made about the oversight to Oranga Tamariki, so we'll have more on that. Uh, Christopher Luxon is in for his weekly chat, and I see we've got a final story here about sleep, which you may or may not be interested in. Apparently we are uh, less nice to people after a bad night's sleep. Yeah. Sort of is that the shortest article of all time? Like, yes, people getting crabby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm fascinated. But we'll have more on that anyway. Yes, cool. Thank you very much, uh, Corinne Dan, of course, up after six. Well, the Palmy Drag Fest is fast approaching. Not the normal hoons in Toyota's Longford Turbot Ave that we know and love. This is a show at the Regent Theatre in Palmerston North with drag queens and kings set to attract more than a thousand attendees. Reporter Leonard Powell tracked down those involved to find out more about the phenomenon. Palmy Dragfest producer Enrique Bairo is on a mission to make Palmerston North the drag capital of New Zealand. And if the upcoming festival is anything to go by, he could be on the money. Originally from Brazil, Enrique lived in Palmerston North as a teenager before studying at Toy Fakare in Wellington and eventually moving to Melbourne. Enrique says the move back to Palmerston North has been an adjustment. I moved to Palmy and there was absolutely no drag at all. And just the thought of doing drag here, people look at you and are like, oh, oh, okay. After returning to find no drag scene, Enrique, who also performs as Rhubarb Rouge, decided to start one up. Last year's first Palmy Drag Fest turned out to be a hit. Last year we did it at the Globe Theatre, which is a a local theatre here with only, I think, 200 in the audience. And those tickets sold out five months before the show. This year, things are ramped up. The Palmy Drag Fest has moved to the Regent Theatre, a venue five times the capacity of the Globe. 
co-producer Jill Brider says any fears of slow ticket sales were short-lived. The hype is coming, I think, in the sense that the fact that t- tickets were selling so quickly when it first got announced it was incredible, really. With just under three weeks until the show, over 900 of the 1,300 tickets have now gone. Brider says local accommodation is being well booked, which shows people are coming from out of town to attend. The show will have 15 drag queens and one drag king, and according to Enrique, a world-class lineup. They are coming from all over New Zealand and Australia, so we were very lucky to get drag royalty like Karen from Finance from Melbourne and um, drag icon legend that is Minnie Cooper from Sydney. They're both from RuPaul's Drag Race, and we're getting drag queens from all over New Zealand, from Auckland, New Plymouth, Wellington, and the amazing Hugo Girl, um, who's a drag king from Auckland. There's a little bit for everyone, you know, there's theatre drag, there's glamour drag, there's funny drag, there's live singing. There will be a little bit for everyone. It will be a smorgasbord of drag. Auckland-based Miss Gina is one of those drag queens performing at Palmy Drag Fest. I've been doing drag for eight years now. It started out as a way of me being able to perform music as a female. I now identify as a trans woman, so drag definitely helped me discover my true identity. A resident drag queen at Kaluzi Cabaret, Miss Gina says the mainstreamification of drag has mostly been positive, but like anything, has its pros and cons. The pros are that after we do this full time, we're getting a lot more work. Uh, this is the thing that we love, and getting paid to do what we love is always a bonus. And it's like that trickle-down effect from Drag Race, obviously, so we're getting a lot more people come to our shows. The cons being, as long as people remember to be respectful when you come to these shows, this is a queer art form at the heart. Please respect us and we will put on the show for you. Respecting performers' boundaries, Miss Gina says, ensures the best possible shows. Don't touch a drag queen without their consent. Don't touch our hair. Don't kiss us on the cheek. We've got a lot of makeup on. It took us like four hours to put this on. If you want a hug, just ask. If you want a photo, just ask. And when we're performing, make lots of noise, cheer for us, because we feed off your energy. So we want to do the best that we can do for you. Support for the show has included a video message from Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson. Kia ora. I just wanted to wish everyone all the best for a fabulous Palmy Drag Fest. I'm really sorry I can't be there. Actually, why I am sorry I can't be there to be a spectator, you would not want me to be participating. I can assure you of that. For Enrique, the support means the world. To have, you know, the Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand, who... By the way, I'm so proud that he's a gay man. Like, I don't think anywhere else in the world we would have someone, especially, I'm from Brazil, so to have someone in that kind of um, role that is openly gay and supportive of such an event is an amazing thing. Enrique says while drag may not be for everyone, everyone should be able to appreciate the show. In the end of the day, it is theatre. So, you know, it's like Shakespeare did drag, if you think about it. It's, it's an art form, it's a performance, so even if you don't like drag, I think you'll be impressed. Leonard Powell reporting there. It is uh, heading towards 6 o'clock. Nelson remains in a state of emergency with civil defence urging people to limit non-essential travel, please. Uh, schools also being advised to remain closed for the remainder of the week. So to catch us up on that is the principal of Nelson College School for Girls, Cathy Ewing. Kia ora, Cathy. Kia ora, Dakin. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. What have you been told by civil defence? Um, civil defence have um, and extended the state of emergency in Nelson until next Wednesday and they met with us with the Ministry of Education and the Ministry of Health last 
Monday, on Monday, and they've indicated that the traffic difficulties with Rocks Road, which is one of the main north-south uh, routes of, for traffic in Nelson, uh, with that being closed, and also major roadworks on Waimea Road, which is the only other main road, um, that bringing all of the numbers of people that would come into the city for the schools um, is is potentially problematic yeah. and adding to the traffic problems. So they, they, they didn't tell us we had to. Um, they strongly recommended that we... not We're actually open still, but we are closed for students actually coming in. Coming in. So, so Cathy, because yeah. I'm thinking here of your qual students, you know, that are going yeah. for things, it's quite worrying for them. I know they've got mocks coming up soon. You've, you've, uh, you haven't suffered any damage, so that's good. So at least will some of the online practice that your staff had in the last couple of years, can, can that be put to a, a good use? to help? Yes, we've basically uh, brought everything back from, from the lockdown situations um, for this time period. Um, we, we're hoping that we'll be back next week, but uh, Rocks Road is very badly damaged and so we're not quite sure. Uh, but you're definitely hoping back next week. So yes, the staff um, have um, reinstituted everything that they did last um Last year and the year before, and doing well-being checks and all of those kind of things as well, as well as providing the learning um, online and support online for students. And there's well-being for your students as well, but your staff. I mean, this is very difficult for all the staff around New Zealand and for you yourself that's having to do this. How are you guys coping? Um, The the staff are coping amazingly well. We have some staff, and so do other schools, uh, where they actually have suffered damage. So we've, we've kind of got the support of, of uh, you know, teachers as well as families who have um, suffered damage um, from either uh, flooding or slips because both have been happening. Um, and so, yes, I mean, we had a group of staff who spent the last two days over the weekend um, helping a colleague to clear, I think some of that was on the TV3 News, of, of clearing out a massive mudslide that had come down around his house. Um, you know, everybody's just been so supportive of each other. Um, and, you know, the students I know too, some of them have suffered, their families have suffered mm. uh, quite badly as well. So, yes, it's kind of balancing all of those all of those things, the need, the need for that support, but also for keeping learning going, particularly our seniors. We haven't got, you know, it's a critical time of year at this point in time for them. Yeah. Well, uh, Cathy, thank you very much for catching us up. Best of luck to you and your staff. And, of course, not just uh, Nelson College School for Girls, uh, all around the, the Tasman area, we send our very best to you. Well, Hamilton West MP Gaurav Sharma uh, was expelled from the Labour caucus yesterday, having spent the past fortnight making allegations of bullying and gaslighting by party whips, fellow MPs and staff from the Prime Minister's office. 60 Labour MPs voted to expel Dr Sharma from the party, while one opposed and another abstained from voting. Our reporter Tom Taylor visited Hamilton West in the wake of the decision to find out what's next for the electorate and its rebel MP. As has been the case throughout the Gaurav Sharma saga, there was nothing straightforward about yesterday's order of events. Until he showed up to the caucus meeting in Wellington yesterday morning, it was unclear whether Dr Sharma would attend at all. He told RNZ late on Monday night that he might be in Hamilton or Auckland instead. Yeah, well look, I don't know if I'm going to be in Wellington tomorrow or Hamilton tomorrow, and tomorrow's, you know, probably the worst day now because it's all sort of coming to the to head. I might, I might even be in Auckland, so you know, I'm not sure if I'm in Auckland, happy to sit down. And despite saying he apologised if he had broken people's trust, Dr Sharma repeated his allegations of bullying within the Labour Party, without producing the evidence he says he has. 
Yet, on the ground in Dr Sharma's electorate of Hamilton West, there remains some support for the now independent MP. I knew that he was in trouble, but I don't know if it's his fault or he wasn't supported. Whether he's honest or dishonest or whatever happened, the way they've gone about it is wrong. It's not the way it should have been handled. I think it's disappointing, mainly because, you know, they should have done an investigation and got all their facts right from an independent party before making a final decision. Martin Gallagher, a Hamilton West Ward councillor, says the Labour caucus had no choice but to expel Dr Sharma. A former Labour MP for Hamilton West himself, Mr Gallagher says he had always found Dr Sharma a hard-working MP. As a former Labour MP for Hamilton West, I'm obviously saddened, very sad, as to the outcome. And I'm personally very sad that our current Member of Parliament for Hamilton West, Dr Sharma, did not take up the offer of independent mediation, which was a way forward. So that that leaves me sad, and I respect the fact that in terms of caucus rules, collegiality, having been in that caucus myself on and off for 12 years, some time ago now, I respect the caucus process, but I'm certainly sad at the ultimate outcome. He says Dr Sharma's effectiveness in Parliament will be reduced as an independent MP. The fact that Dr Sharma's no longer in a wider room, a caucus whether it's government, Labour or National or another caucus, does, in my view, will reduce his effectiveness, in in my view. And I, I just say that by observation. I think in our parliament you're far better to be in a team and I think you're more effective in a team. Having said that, from a council point of view, we'll still maintain a very professional relationship with him as one of our local MPs. President of the Waikato Multicultural Council, Ravinda Power, says Hamilton's ethnic communities feel Dr Sharma represents and understands them well. Mr Power says that being a GP had gained Dr Sharma respect, and people in the community were generally satisfied with his work as an MP. He was present everywhere. Another thing I've noticed, we've got a Hamilton Press local newspaper. He had generally have a big ad, and you can see how busy he is because he's here, there, you know, it's a time-wise. And that, that was actually yeah, new. Never used to see uh, previous MPs doing that. Mr Power says voters will lose out with Dr Sharma becoming independent. The losers in that sense, it's not Gaurav, it's the voters. We all know that yeah, he won't have that, that much clout or he won't have that authority to do that. Yeah, so uh, it's the voters who are going to suffer. So where to from here? Dr Sharma told our producer on Monday night that he has a wealth of evidence to support his claims of bullying. He offered her a weekend appointment in Auckland to reveal this evidence. He offered the same to Checkpoint's Lisa Owen. Let's book an hour or two appointment uh, and we'll go through all the evidence. Happy to show you things as well, obviously wanting to maintain the privacy of uh, Can you forward that evidence to us by the close of business today, Dr Sharma? I'm happy for you to set an appointment with me for this week. Uh, okay, so you wish to con- you want to be in control of presenting the evidence and, and offering some explanation that goes with it. Is it not self-explanatory? No, no, well, it's not that, you know, like it's basically, as I said, you know, because there are people involved in it, there is privacy involved in it. Back on the streets of Hamilton, the diagnosis was inconclusive, with many of Dr Sharma's constituents unsure what his future should hold. I think he probably deserved it because you don't do that where you're supposed to be supporting your leader instead of going against them. I think it's a real shame. I'm a Labour supporter and and a green supporter, and I think it potentially hands that electric back to National. I think uh, he should do the right thing by his electric, really. If they want him to stay, that's fine, but if they don't, then he needs to move on. 
Dr Sharma says he's yet to decide whether to continue as an independent MP or resign and trigger a by-election in Hamilton West. That's Tom Taylor reporting there. And uh, that is first up for the 24th of August. I said I've been basically asleep for the last eight days. What's some news that's happened? Here's one. Well, I noticed the wild clematis flowering while tramping back of Thames. Everything was sharp, clear and fragrant. So that's good. Uh, Maureen and Nathan, welcome back. Thank you very much, Nolene. Here's one. I'm going to be All Blacks coach. Oh, wait. No, I'm not. That's from Scott of Christchurch. Uh, And, uh, yeah, look, welcome back messages too. Thank you very much. Uh, for your for your lovely messages, I'm gonna lie down. How about that. Uh, anyway, think about this, Palmerston North. You got a big night coming up. Morning report is next with Susie and Corin from all of us here at First Up. We love the nightlife. We love to boogie, and we'll be back in your ears. Up or. Your-